0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Question the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer, so that we can uh, take care of any unconfessed sins. Make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to study the Word and take it in this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we still have the privilege to meet freely in this nation and to accurately teach your word. Father, we pray that as we study your word today that we would be responsive to it. We thank you that your word is sufficient in all areas and addresses every area of life to teach us how to think as you would have us to think and how to properly understand history, the movement of history, your plan in history, and how you are Glorifying yourself in history. Father, we each have an important role to play as believers. Because as goes the believer, so goes the nation. And we are the remnant. We are the pivot to enable this nation to go forward. And yet, Father, that pivot is shrinking because fewer and fewer people understand your word accurately. And apply it in their lives. Fewer and fewer people even care about doctrine. So, Father, we pray that we might be responsive your word this morning and apply it in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Religion has become, well, always has been a topic of controversy, but it's particularly become a cultural flashpoint in our society over the past 20 or 30 years. On the one hand, you have the secular atheistic crowd who always wants to remove any semblance of religion from society. We have our fair share of those folks here in Connecticut. Seems like either over, it was either in Milford or New Milford. I heard several weeks ago that there had been a court case, and that court case involved whether or not a child evangelism fellowship after school five day club could be held on school grounds. And that was taken to a lower court, which said no, that was a violation of the separation of church and state, which isn't even in the Constitution. And then it went to the Supreme Court, and that same that lower court had made that same kind of ruling over 20 years ago and got reversed by the Supreme Court, and they got reversed again. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's, that's not a problem. It's after school. It's voluntary. It's not school-sponsored. It's not government-sponsored. There's not a problem with that. It's a good thing. In fact, it was always considered a good thing in this country to have some sort of Christian instruction back when it was a more homogenous Christian-oriented culture. But uh, the leaders over in that school district were not satisfied with that ruling. They're so anti-Christian that it shows. They decided that it better, rather than have their children exposed to the teaching of the Bible, goodness, let's, uh, let's just do away with all after-school activities and all clubs and everything else so that we, just don't, we can protect our precious little children from the horrible truths of the Bible. Again, this last week, there was another court case in New Milford, and this involved a group at a local church who was, because the church was growing, they didn't have room for people wherever they were meeting, so they were meeting in their homes. And in one particular home was hosting the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Well, some of the neighbors didn't like it because we got too many cars in the neighborhood, so they filed a complaint with the city council, and the city council said it violated an ordinance that you couldn't have uh, religious uh, meetings unless it was properly zoned. So our wonderful friends and neighbors in Connecticut decided that uh, that wasn't legitimate, so that it went to court, and fortunately a judge overturned it. So now the leaders in New, New Milford are scrambling around trying to figure out some way to outlaw having prayer meetings or any kind of religious gathering in private homes so that it doesn't offend anybody. But that's the secular atheist crowd on one side. The problem is there's always, wherever there's an action, there's always an equal and opposite reaction. And the other side of it is the religious group. And the religious group always includes a vast number of Christians who don't have enough doctrine between their ears to understand what the real issues are. And so on the other side you have... The pro-religious crowd who is promoting any kind of religion as valuable, as important as the backbone of culture and society, that any kind of religion, any kind of talk about spirituality, prayer, whatever the content or lack of content might be, is automatically good, positive, and beneficial for society. Trouble is, we're going to learn in our study of Judges 17 this morning that both of these groups are deceived, misguided, and dangerous, and that if either of them wins, society loses, the culture collapses, and the nation is on its way to destruction. The reason that religion has nothing to do with biblical Christianity is that biblical Christianity is based on a relationship with God. It's not based on ritual forms or contentless prayer, meditation, or anything of that nature. It is not based on works. Religion is always based on some kind of works and puts an emphasis on certain practices and their value for their own sake. Prayer, uh, meditation, evangelism, giving, all of those things seem to have some inherent value, uh, and that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that our relationship with God is based on grace. Satan always attacks grace, so that religion is one of Satan's greatest tools in history to distract and destroy the human race. And in Judges 17, we're going to see how it was religion that introduced uh, apostasy into Israel, and it is religion that caused the cultural collapse during the period of Judges. Now, as I look back over my notes this week, I discovered that we began this study of Judges uh, one year and one month ago. On June the 12th of the year 2000 was when we began our study of judges. So this last year we've been studying the dark days of the judges. This is the dark ages in Israel's history, many say, although I think it got just as bad in in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom later on. But at this time the culture itself has collapsed. They haven't come together, unified yet, as a people, as a nation. And you see the breakdown, the fragmentation that occurs after the Joshua generation. Now we come to a point in our study here where we see that we enter into a new section of the book of Judges. So let's go back a little bit and just review where we've been in Judges because we have to understand why this is here. When we come to chapters 17 through 21 at the end of Judges, this is one of those one of those weird sections of Scripture to most people—they don't understand why it's there. It tells some of the most horrid. Uh, it contains some of the most horrid episodes, some of the most extreme violence, some of the most bizarre happenings in all of Scripture. And most people read it. They're they're either bored with it or they don't have a clue what it's all about. So it's one of those sections people just sort of skip over and let's go to the Book of Ruth. So we have to understand the structure of Judges. And we have to understand the author's intent, or we'll just completely miss the significance of these five chapters. So we outline the book in three sections. One one through three six is the introduction, sets the theme, introduces us to the time, the place, the setting, and the major problem that's going to take place in the period of the judges. It's summarized in three one through six. The cycles are, excuse me, in, yes, in three one through six, the cycles of disobedience. In 3.7 through 16.31, we have the second section that describes the breakdown of the leadership of the nation. This emphasizes the deliverers. This is the book of the deliverers, the book of the judges, the, the book of the governors, some say. Uh, team emphasizes all of those concepts. It's not a judge in the sense that we think of a judge as a magistrate in a courtroom. All that was a minor part of their function. It was primarily to lead the nation and it functioned in terms of of deliverance in terms of the military in terms of of, uh, judicial decision making but it's a gradual deterioration as we have seen Othniel is the first judge and he is presented as a very positive judge And then the deterioration continues until you hit Samson. Samson never delivers the nation. Samson is as much a part of the problem as he is part of the solution. And he is a perfect example of all of the perversion that is taking place in the nation. And then we come down to the last five chapters, and that demonstrates the breakdown, the paganism of the people. That even though you have good leaders, even though you have good leaders, I notice once again we have paganism technical challenges up here even though you have good leaders if the people are not oriented to doctrine and applying doctrine and have establishment principles then the leadership cannot succeed but in this case we also see the other principle and that is that leaders come out from the general cultural pool and so they reflect just as they reflect the um, relativism and the paganism that is endemic during the period of the judges. So this is our outline in Judges 1.1 through 3.6. We have an introduction to the basic mechanics of this whole period and the cycles of disobedience. In Judges 3.7 to 16.31, the breakdown of the leadership, and then in 17 to 21, the breakdown of the people. This section demonstrates that if the majority of the people are negative to God, and negative-to-establishment principles that even great leaders can't preserve that society. We can't look to a presidential election or a congressional election as some sort of magic bullet that's going to solve the problem. As great application for us today, the problem has to do with the people in this nation, that until the people in this nation turn back to doctrine. There's not going to be a solution. It's not turning back to religion. It's not turning back to morality. Morality cannot solve the problem. The ultimate problem is sin. Morality may provide a measure of stability. Religion may provide a modicum of control to some degree. But eventually it will fall apart. And we are going to see that religion and morality, and I'm not saying that we should have no religion or immorality, I'm saying that they are only temporary fixes. They are limited in their application. And morality never, ever solves the fundamental spiritual problem of sin. It's got to start with grace and an understanding of doctrine. Now let's turn back to Judges chapter 2, and we're going to see... Joshua's perspective on this. We have to understand the overall time frame. In 1446 B.C., Israel came out of Egypt. They disobeyed God at Mount Sinai, and and then at Kadesh, and they got into idolatry there. And just a note that will become relevant as we get into our study of Judges 17 and following. The only tribe that stood with Moses were the Levites. So God appointed the Levites to be the priest tribe of the nation. Now that becomes relevant later on, but just a little reminder of that episode. They left Egypt. They came to the border of the promised land of the land of Canaan. And at Kadesh Barnea, they sent the 12 spies into the land. Ken came back and said, we can't do it. There are giants in the land there. Too many people. They have strong fortifications. In other words, they thought their problems were bigger than God, and they also misunderstood the word of God. There's a tremendous lesson there that if you misinterpret the word of God, you'll never be able to solve your problems. Because they thought God said, go see if you can take the land, and God said, uh, go see how you're going to take the land. God had already promised that he would give it, give it to them, so they misunderstood, and only two guys got it right, Caleb and Joshua. And so they, the nation had to spend 40 years in the wilderness in discipline until that rebellious generation died off and a new generation came up that was positive to doctrine, they sat under the Bible teaching of Moses, of Joshua of Caleb and they applied doctrine and so they were ready and in 1406 B.C. they entered into the land, crossed the Jordan and the conquest began under Joshua for it lasted about seven years to 1399 B.C and they took all the major strongholds in the land. They, first they went into the center part of the land, took out the major towns and cities of Jericho and Ai, then they headed south and then north, and then after that there was a mopping up operation. And so for about 40 years there's a mopping up operation where they are, the various tribes are trying to gain control of their territory, and we had studied that. We studied that in the first chapter of Judges, And there we saw that they gradually failed. They compromised. They didn't annihilate the population as they were told to by God. And so starting in 1360 B.C., after Joshua and his generation completely died off, you have approximately a 300-year period of deterioration and decline. There's this constant cycle, disobedience, discipline, and deliverance. Now let's look at Judges chapter two, verse six, when Joshua had dismissed the people, this is a reference to Judges. Uh, excuse me, Joshua chapter twenty-four, at the when he gathered the nation together to reaffirm their covenant with God at Shechem. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. So for that generation, that would take us up to approximately 1360 B.C. All who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Note, we, when we covered that, I emphasized the fact that there was objective, historical, reliable evidence in their lives, in the lives of that generation, that was the generation that saw God tear down the walls of Jericho. That was the generation that saw the defeat at Ai. That was the generation that saw the sun stand still when they battled the Gibeonites. That was the generation that saw the historical evidence of what God had revealed to them, and they knew God existed. See, re- religion is all, always ends up in subjectivity. But Christianity is always objective. It's based on an objective revelation of God's Word that God communicated to us. He communicated certain things that He intends for us to understand. He did not communicate in order for us to have play some guessing game as to what God meant. He communicated to be lucid, to be clear, to be understood so that man could have a, a clear perception of what God wanted. And they had an understanding of objective truth in that generation, and they understood the acts of God in history. They understood that history was important, because history gives us a, an understanding of God's plan and purposes. History is the outworking of his plan. But then we're told, verse 8, Then Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of hundred and ten. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. See, what happened is they rejected history. They had no concept of history. They had no appreciation for history. They thought history was just a bunch of stories. And what is true is that there are many people who rewrite history. There are many historical revisionists who come in because they don't have an objective framework, and so they don't know how to interpret history, and history just becomes a tool of propaganda. This is exemplified, I think, most clearly in the Old Testament when Jeroboam becomes the king of the northern kingdom after there's the tax revolt against Solomon because of the oppressive taxes on the, that, he, that he had raised, and then when his son Rehoboam took over at the point of Solomon's death, Rehoboam followed the advice of all the young men to just jack up the taxes so they could have more. And uh, the people finally got fed up with it. So uh, Jeroboam in the north led a tax revolt and the ten nations went out and and set up an alternative, alternative nation. But now he had to establish a religious foundation because he had to unify the people. He couldn't have his people as a separate nation always having to go south into the other country to Jerusalem to worship God. So he decided that he would rewrite history, and he had a golden calf made, and he put it at Samaria, and he established an alternate worship site, and he said, here's the historical revisionism, this is the God who led you out of Egypt. So he began to rewrite history, and always be careful when people are starting to rewrite history, they have an agenda that will lead to the nation's destruction. So this generation that came up was negative to God, and they had no appreciation for objective works of God in history. And here are three important principles to understand from this. First of all, when a nation rejects the historical evidences for Christianity as being objectively valid, the people always become subjective. Once you begin to reject the fact that Christianity is an objective reality that there was a man named Jesus who walked on the earth from a, and, and his ministry extended from about 30 to 33 AD and that he went to the cross and there he died for our sins and there, then he was buried then he rose again on the third day. Once you reject that and Jesus just becomes some idealized figure of morality or some figure of somebody who, who is to uh, motivate us to live for what we believe in or any of the myriad of other ideas about Uh, That that destroy the person of Jesus Christ once you reject the historical validity of Christianity that it's objective that there are things that God did in human history God erupted that's I-R-R-U-P-T not erupted E-R-U erupted means to go into that God erupted into human history at the point of the incarnation so that God himself revealed objective truth to us once you reject that Then if there's no objectivity, nothing you can know out there, then all you can know is your own impressions. All we can know is our own emotions. All we can know is our own feelings. And once you destroy objective truth, the only thing to replace it is subjectivity. And once you replace objectivity with subjectivity, then everything goes to mysticism and emotion. That's the second principle. Subjectivity always leads to emotion and mysticism. Objectivity is based on clear, rational, objective thought. But once you destroy that, then all you're left with is emotion. And so the masses then are, the masses of people in a nation are moved by their emotion, not by fact, not by thought, not by content. They're they're motivated by whatever the emotional appeal is of the day. And we see it today. I think Marshall McLuhan predicted it and foreshadowed it in all of the... Um, um, images that we have on television, that the image becomes more significant than content. And we saw examples of this last year, and it happens on both sides of the aisle, conservatives, liberals, because we live in a culture that's moved by images and not by content. Images appeal to our emotions. We have visceral responses when we see certain pictures, certain things on television. I think that probably one of the great examples of that was the ad that... uh, LBJ ran when he was running against Goldwater back in, in uh, 64, and at the end of one ad, all he, you had was a quick two- or three-second visual of an atomic bomb going off. And that scared people, so they did not want to vote for Goldwater because they thought it would bring nuclear war. So, so they responded emotionally, viscerally to that image, and they operated on subjectivity and not thoughtful content. Subjectivity always leads to mysticism. That's the second point. The third point is that subjectivity in a nation always leads to the destruction of that culture. Subjectivity in a nation always leads to the destruction of that culture. It will always deteriorate and will always fall apart. Because once you get into subjectivity, it destroys values. It destroys objective absolutes. Everything becomes relative. And then you get in the same situation Israel got into where everyone, what was, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. There were no absolutes. And once you get into uh, working out over time in history, the results of relativism is fragmentation. The more people do what's right in their eyes, the more disparate they're going to become. And that's what we see in our nation today. All the different groups fragment. One group wants this, another group wants that, another group wants this, and everybody's into political action. And it just drives people further and further away until you see some form of internal collapse. You see uh, uh, contradictions or controversy between East and West over energy, between the the oil-producing states and the non-energy-producing states, this whole thing with, with the energy crisis in California. Uh, has tremendous negative potential. The impact of the environmentalists. This last week, there was a rule, or this last spring, there was a ruling in Klamath Falls, Oregon, where you had a um, uh, a river that had been used for irrigation for over a hundred years by the settlers in that valley. The radical environmentalists had brought a case that there was a couple of uh, there was a small fish that lived in that uh, water in that valley, and that if they continued to use it in the way they've been using it for 100 years, that this this uh, sucker fish would be uh, become extinct. And so they won a court case, and the court case said no longer could they utilize the water in that valley for irrigation for farmers or for anything else, and uh, so they had to just let the river, river flow and of course that affects about 14 uh, I can't remember if it's 1400 14,000 people who live in that valley and who've had farms there for generations and all of the, the people who live there in the, in the small towns and villages but they can't get the water for drinking, they can't get the water for their crops and so last week or a couple of weeks ago they, the farmers got together and they went marched on the dam and they Open the sluice gates and let the water out. Then the federal government had to send U.S. Marshals in in order to shut it off again. And so we have a higher value is placed on the life of a couple of sucker fish than human beings. And this just shows another example of how our nation is fragmenting because we consider uh, the life of a fish to be more valuable than commerce, to be more valuable than uh, economic production, to be more valuable than then raising crops and feeding people and so we're going to radically transform the lives of of uh, hundreds of thousands of people simply because of a couple of fish and that shows that we have gone to complete subjectivity and it just illustrates the further fragmentation of our culture so the result in israel in chapter 2 verse 10 that after the previous generation had died and the Negative generation came up. They rejected historical evidences. They went into subjectivity. And notice, they don't go into atheism or secularism. What do they do? They go into religion. They reject God, and the solution is religion. It is the fertility religion of the Canaanites, but nevertheless, it is still religion. Now, You see an example, and that's an immoral religion. You see an example of moral religion in the history of Israel later on after they returned from the uh, Babylonian captivity, and you see the rise of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, specifically the Pharisaical party. Now, what had happened was when God finally disciplined the nation in 586 B.C. and took them out into the captivity, that discipline, one reason for that discipline was their idolatry. They had stopped worshiping the the Baalim and the Asherim at the end of the period of the Judges. This continues to be a problem down throughout Israel's history in in the Old Testament. And so God finally had to discipline them because of the paganism that had taken such a deep root in their culture in the form of idolatry. Now, after they got their their, uh, divine discipline... In 586 B.C., when they returned to the land, Israel never again had a problem with overt idolatry. What they have a problem with is legalistic morality now. But the legalistic morality of the Pharisees didn't solve the problem either. See, religion and morality can't solve the problem. What happens? The legalistic morality of the Pharisees ultimately led to the nation going out under the fifth cycle of discipline again in 70 A.D., and they're still out under discipline. And that shows that neither Im- immorality, immoral religion, or moral religion can solve the problem. It's not, the problem isn't, uh, with man isn't a problem of morality. It is a spiritual problem. That we are born corrupt by Adam's nature. We have all inherited a sin nature. And because of that, we are divorced from God. And until that problem is solved, there is no solution. So all attempts... To, now I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved politically we're citizens of our country and we should be but all attempts that come under the category of activism where you people get out and march and carry on all, all kinds of activistic crusades in order to try to change society are going to fall apart they're going to collapse usually they're motivated by some form of self-serving arrogance and secondly they are not addressing the real problem they're doing nothing more than trying to polish the brass on a sinking ship. And it's the devil's world and too many people are trying to too many Christians are out there trying to clean it up and they forget that we're still living in the cosmic system. That doesn't mean we throw up our hands and become just passive in the whole situation. We need to be involved, but there needs to be the right kind of involvement. Well, Judges chapter 2 set the stage. And the result of their rejection of historical evidences was idolatry. The sons of Israel, not just the leaders, but the people, did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook, that means they abandoned, they intentionally rejected the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. Now, as we saw in the opening slide, that's the part of the introduction. Introduction ends in 3.6, and then you have the story of the deliverers, and we see the continuous decline through that whole period from from one leader to the next, and the cycle continues and the nation breaks down, and we see it deteriorate from one judge to the next. We follow the cycles from Othniel to Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, and that covers the cycle of the judges up through the end of chapter 16, and Samson is the last judge. In a sense, that's the end of the period. Samson and Samuel live at the same time. Samson can't deliver the nation. Samuel will be the one through whom the nation is delivered because he teaches doctrine, and there will be a return to positive volition under the ministry of Samuel. But that's the story that begins over in 1 Samuel. So what happens in chapter 17 through 21? Chapter 17 through 21 describe what is taking place among the people during this time. It is parallel to what took place from chapter 3 through chapter 16. In fact, it will take us all the way back to the very beginning and we're going to understand some, some, one particular illustration of how they got involved in apostasy and i'm going to give you a preview of coming attractions because we won't get there until next time but while you're turning to judges 17 just turn over to the end of judges 18 in judges 17 and 18 we have one event related to a idolatry and apostasy situation set up by An Ephraimite named Micah. Now, let's look at the structure here. This is really important. This is a principle that you have to understand or you'll never understand. And you'll be deceived about so many things. 17 and 18 describe how the religious apostasy began. And what we've seen again and again and again, we go back to Judges chapter 2 and Judges chapter 3 looking at the cycle is that first there's religious apostasy and then there's the collapse of the culture. It's not the other way around. It's not that the collapse of the culture and it's not that the economic problems, political problems, and military problems caused religious apostasy. It's that because there was religious apostasy, there were economic problems, political problems, and military problems. And you could add education problems and healthcare problems and every other kind of problem and or crisis that people come up with today. All of that is a... Consequence of religious apostasy. And that's why 17 and 18, the author of Judges, focuses on how the religious apostasy began. And then in chapters 19 through 21, which we may just cover in one episode because it's so so gross, describes the grossest immorality, vicious activity, violence, abuse, Some of the most graphic abuse that's ever described anywhere in the scripture. And the author sets it up this way to make a point. That religious apostasy always precedes cultural collapse. Apostasy precedes rampant immorality and violence and criminality. And notice, it's not a secular, humanistic, atheistic culture that produces this kind of violence. It's a religious culture. It's an apostate culture. So when people come along today and you hear them say, well, the solution is we just need to have prayer in the schools. We just need to have, have more religion. It's so generic that what they want is the same kind of thing that's going on in, in, in Judges chapter 17, and that is a religious solution and not a biblical solution. Until there's a return to understanding the grace of God starting at the cross, there is no solution. Now I had you turn to the end of Judges eighteen and I want you to look at verse thirty. This chapter describes the impact of this idolatry and apostasy and how it is accepted and assimilated, particularly into the tribe of Dan. And we saw way back at the beginning, I know you don't remember all the way back to to June of last year, but Back then we saw that it was the tribe of Dan that, that was the most impotent when it came to defeating the Canaanites. And it was because of what happens in this chapter. So this, that's one reason that I say that the events of this chapter take us all the way back to the beginning of the period of the Judges. The other reason is what's stated here. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image, and Jonathan the son of Gershom. This is the, we're going to run into this, this, this Levitical priest here. uh, or this priest here in um, um, Judges, and and there's a textual problem here. It's not Jonathan the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh. It's Jonathan the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. And there's a textual problem there, and this takes us back to the fact that it is a descendant of Moses. And see, think with me. Moses dies in approximately 1401 B.C. when they get ready to go into the land. So his son Gershom at that time, Moses, was 120. So Gershom would have probably been close to 80. And this could have been the youngest son that he had. Uh, And this Jonathan then... So this takes us right back to the beginning of that period, only a couple of generations removed from Moses. And it is this man who introduces this apostasy into the nation. So for that reason... We see that these events take place, take us all the way back to the beginning now. This is approximately the same time of Othniel's judgeship. Now Othniel was positive, but even that early in the period of the judges, we see what is the internal collapse that is taking place in the nation. Now let's look at seventeen twenty one. Seventeen through twenty one. These two accounts, a couple of things we want to, um, a couple of observations we, I want to make here. First of all, these, um, there are crises involved in both sections. 17 and 18 are one event, 19 through 21 relate to another event. In both accounts, the crisis is precipitated by the actions of a nameless Levite. Now, the Levites were the priest nation. And what the, the reason the author picks these two episodes is because they are going to be representative of many other things that are going on in the nation. And so he is indicating that the crisis that is occurring in Israel comes from the spiritual leadership. It comes from the spiritual leadership, and we see the same kind of thing happening in our nation today. I am so jaded and so skeptical because of my involvement and awareness of what is being taught, what passes for biblical teaching today, I really try to to keep from being a complete cynic as far as what passes for Christianity goes, because biblical teaching is profound, it's wonderful. What biblical Christianity teaches is a solution to every problem that we face. It's all based on the grace of God. And I am continuously amazed at how pastors in our country today find themselves busy doing everything but teaching the Word of God. If you're going to be a pastor, you have to have a passion what they'll usually say is you have to have a passion for people and you have to be loving, all this other stuff that's all secondary. You have to have a passion for the Bible. You have to have a passion for study. Because the primary job of the pastor is to feed the sheep. That's what Jesus told Peter in John 21. He said, feed, if you love me, feed my sheep. If a pastor isn't feeding the sheep, he doesn't love Christ. That's what that means. There is no love for Christ. And frankly, he doesn't love his sheep. The highest expression of love a pastor can show for the congregation is to spend his time studying. A pastor should spend a minimum of 35, 40 hours a week studying, reading, constantly learning. He should be so in love with the Word of God that he eats, breathes, and sleeps it. Because his job is to understand it and to be able to communicate it to people so that they can grow spiritually. And yet what you find when you get out in most churches, pastors are involved in this program, that program. Dan was telling me one time about a a pastor who came to speak at chapel down at uh, Capitol Seminary. And the pastor talked about, was encouraging the the, uh, men there who were going to go in the pastor. And he said, "Now, now men, you need to make sure your people know that you work. So be sure you get out with the people. You just can't go into your study and be there the whole time. And uh, Ann and I were talking about it. See, you, you don't wonder what I do during the week. Some of you may not even care. But uh, you don't wonder. It should be obvious on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night when I get up here to teach what I have been doing during the week. That I can't teach like this. A pastor worth his salt cannot teach the Word without spending 30, 40, 50 hours a week studying. And it takes a lifetime. Someone recently asked me, I think it was last week I ran into a friend of mine down at this wedding I did at, over at West Point. And somebody asked me, he asked me, he said, well, about how much time does it take you to prepare a lesson? I said, A lifetime. It's not just a product of one week. It's, it's taken years of study. It's, it's cumulative, and you, you can't get distracted with all of, the, um, all of the administrative things and all of the secondary aspects of the pastor. And I'm firmly committed that if you teach the Word, that God provides the hearers, and that the people who don't come for the hearing of the Word are not people you want in the congregation. A lot of the church growth movement today has pastors are trying to recruit everybody in the neighborhood to go to church because it's a good thing to go to church. See, there's that problem of religion being the solution again. And they want everybody there. And then once they get all these people into church, very few of them are positive. And now they have real problems. And I run into pastors all the time. They have problems with revolts among the women because the women want to be pastors and the women want to run everything. They have revolts with the men because the men don't, aren't really interested in spiritual things and they'd rather go out and have father-son activities and play golf and, and uh, have Christian fellowship and, and leave the running of the church to the women. One guy asked me one time, he said, Boy, I came to this church and... And I've got a women's Sunday school leader, and I've got women doing this and women doing that. How do I get rid of it? I said, well, it's very hard. He said, how do I get men involved get rid of the women? Every time I've been in a church where the women are in control, the men go somewhere else. They don't want to be involved once the women are in control. So um, that's what's happening today. It's because we've lost sight of what the real issues are, which is the stud- studying the Word of God and applying the Word of God. So we see here that, that the narrator chooses these episodes in order to emphasize the fact that the basic problem is a spiritual problem and related to spiritual leadership. And then he also makes the statement four times in these chapters that in those days Israel had no king. In Judges 17.6, 18.1, 19.1, and 21.25 he says, in those days Israel had no king. Now... I've covered this some before, and I want to go over it again. Often what you will hear is that that's a reference to the monarchy, that obviously the writer, and I think it's correct, the writer is writing some years later when the, either when Saul is king or David is king. And there's a very positive view of the monarchy there, because he, there's almost a suggestion that, well, if we had a king, we wouldn't have the problem with this moral relativism. That's not what he's saying. The reference is not to a human king. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. Hold your place here and turn with me back to Deuteronomy 33, verse 5. Deuteronomy 33, verse 5. This is in Moses Moses' parting blessing to the Jews before he was taken to be taken home to be with the Lord, and he says, speaking of himself in the third person, he said Moses charged us with the law of possession for the assembly of Jacob, and he was king in Jeshurun when the heads and he's talking about God here, uh, and he God was king in Jeshurun. Jeshurun is another name for Israel, and it is a picture of Israel. As spiritually mature, and he's talking to the generation that's going to go into the conquest generation, I mean, and destroy the Canaanites, and they were a spiritually mature generation. So the term Jeshurun, which has its roots in the word for, in the Hebrew word, Yashar, for righteous, it is a word for righteousness, for integrity, for uprightness, refers to Israel as spiritually mature. And it says, He, that is, God was king. And assured, when the heads of the people were gathered, the tribes of Israel together. So turn back with me to Judges now. What that verse tells us is that God is the king. It was a theocracy. But Israel, in the period of the Judges, rejected God. See, kings never did solve the problem. If we go through later history in the Old Testament, we will discover that in the northern kingdom, every single king followed in the sin of of of, um, Jeroboam Jeroboam was the one who I I referred to earlier he introduced idolatry into the northern kingdom after the revolt he set up a golden calf at Samaria and that was his sin and his successor the Bible says did evil in the eyes of the Lord and followed in the son of Jeroboam the son of Nebat and that's like a a, a refrain throughout all the list of kings in the northern kingdom Every one of them did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, but they were doing what was right in their own eyes. In the southern kingdom, you also have numerous kings who did what was right in their own eyes, including Solomon, Jehu, and Ahaz. All did what was right in their own eyes and introduced idolatry into the nation. Others are commended for doing what was right, but they still fell short of the ideal, which was to remove, Some of them restored the worship of God, but they didn't remove the high places. And those were southern kings such as Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoash, Amaziah, Azariah, and Jotham. Only David, Hezekiah, and Josiah received unqualified approval by the writers of the Old Testament. So kings were not a solution. In other words, the political solution is not a solution. So what we learned so far this morning is... the. Moral solution is not a solution. The religious solution is not a solution. It's obvious the immoral solution is not a solution. And the political solution is not a solution. So the only solution is biblical Christianity relying on the grace of God and the sufficient and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, Judges 17, and we'll probably just have time to cover that one chapter briefly this morning. Now certain things seem very positive. As we start off with this first blush reading, we're going to think, well, something positive is going on here, at least there's some positive elements, especially if you come from a religious background, you might think so. We read, let's just read over the first four or five verses. Now now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Literally in the Hebrew it is Micaiah. So they've abbreviated it here. His full name is Micaiah. And he said to his mother, so we come into the middle, it's like, like it's, it's a drama, and, and the curtains are parted, and, and the action's already in progress. So we can extrapolate back because of what's happened as to what's been going on. He said to his mother, "...the eleven hundred pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the, the silver is with me. I took it." And his mother said, "...blessed be my, be my son by the Lord." He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver. Keep your eye on the money. Always remember that. Whenever there's a problem, follow the money. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly, notice that word, wholly dedicate the silver from my hand. That would be 1,100 pieces of silver. From my hand to... For my, to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver. Wait a minute, it was 1,100. See, so follow the money. It went from 1,100 to 200. See, that's what happens in religion a lot. You get people commit You know, annually. I'm going to give a lot of money, do big things for God. See, it's just the same religious facade that you have here. I'm going to do big things for God, a lot of talk and no action. I'm going to give 1,100 pieces of silver to the Lord. Well, she's not giving it to the Lord. She's going to give it to make an idol, so she's violating the law in numerous places. But then she's not even going to give all 1,100. That's a lot of money we saw last time. That was the price that each Lord of the Philistine gave to uh, Delilah in order to... uh, betray Samson. And 1,100 pieces of silver was approximately 165 to $225,000, depending on the rate of exchange and the price of silver. So this is a tremendous amount of money. So she got to thinking about it afterwards and said, well, I'm not going to let my son have, have all that money. I'm not going to put all of it into an idol. Well, I'll just put 200 pieces of silver into it. So I'm not going to make very big idols either because... 200 pieces of silver would only weigh about 5 pounds, so, so all of a sudden she's not being very generous with God anymore. Anyway, she's going to have them made into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. Now this is a um, participle of attendant circumstance in the Hebrew, which indicates that all along he's had this shrine. He's had this, this little temple. In his dwelling, and the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols, and consecrated one of his sons. That means he ordained him. He ordained one of his sons that he might become priest. So he's just setting up his own little uh, religious operation there. And then we have the uh, statement in verse 6 In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, the, in those days here, as I've already demonstrated, refers to the very early period of the Judges. So this is something that happens early on, and it is characteristic of the whole period of the Judges. Now, as we look at this, certain things seem a little positive. First of all, the, the main character has a, a name that suggests that he, he uh, has a positive relationship to God. It is Micaiah literally, in the Hebrew. Makayahu. Makaya micah is just a shortened form, but Makayahu who means who is like Yahweh. It is the prefix me is the Hebrew particle Hebrew word for who. Ka is the word for like, so it means who is like Yahweh. And the thrust of the name is no one. No one's like Yahweh. So so one thing we see here is we, we read his name is Micaiah Hu, and his name means who is like Yahweh. So we expect to find somebody who stands up for God. So he has a religious-sounding name. So that sounds somewhat positive, but what we'll discover is like so many people, they use God's name and religious terminology as a cover for their own activity and a justification for their own actions and agenda. The facade of religion always attempts to wrap itself in the terminology of biblical orthodoxy. And that's why it is so deceptive and why we need to really study doctrine and understand the backgrounds of various false teachings that are going on to be able to understand exactly what is going on. We think about what we believe. We don't just believe it because I say it or because that's what seems to be the most comfortable thing, or that uh, fits our prejudices because we happen to like being around the right people, and we enjoy being around uh, people who are uh, uh, want to be Christian and want to be positive, and so we'll go to this church or that church because of, uh, we're attracted by those people. We're here because we believe the Bible is right, and we're going to understand how to think biblically, not just to... Emote and feel good and be associated with the right people. Second positive thing we see here is that Micah seems to own up to his responsibility here. Yeah, he seems to recognize that he stole the money and he's going to uh, admit it. The only reason he confesses his sin is because he's superstitious and he heard his mother utter a curse. So now he's afraid God's going to curse him. So he's going to own up to it just to avoid any extra punishment. So he's going to give all the money back. Obviously, this is a fairly wealthy situation for his mother to have this, this kind of money. This isn't, he's not just some living in some poor hovel. His, his mother is a, someone of substance. Now, we don't know her name. We also have no mention of his father here. That. That should pay, pay some mind. Remember, Egypt. I mean, remember, Israel is adopted by God, but they rejected God. So there's no, there's no father for Israel right now. So there's the the writer really sets this up to cause us to think about other things that he is somewhat representative of what is going on in the nation as a whole. And what we have seen again and again and again and again through these cycles is that Israel only comes back to God. When God has disciplined them, and they cry out to God many times, not because they recognize their sin. In fact, the first time we, in the passage in Judges, the first time it says that they cried out to God and admitted they did evil, and going after the false gods was in Jephthah's judgeship, which is the fifth judgeship. The others all said they just cried out to God, and they were going through the pain of discipline. It didn't say that there was any admission of guilt or idolatry in those previous four uh, disciplinary setting. So just like Micah, there's a confession to avoid punishment, but no real recognition or admission of any fault. It's just, I don't want to suffer the consequences and get cursed. Third thing we notice is that when he returns the stolen goods to his mother, she blesses him. You know, it's, mother's religion is always good religion, right? Well, some people think that. You know, this is what I learned from my mother's knee. But her religion obviously isn't very good. She blesses him and uses the name Yahweh. She says to him, uh, Blessed, at the end of verse 2, Blessed be my son by Yahweh. But what we're going to discover is she has no relationship with Yahweh. She's immediately going to set up an idolatrous situation. She's going to violate the first two commandments in the Mosaic Law. And I think it's instructive that she uses the word Yahweh because Yahweh is the name that is associated with with God's covenant with Israel. It is a name that first and foremost should remind us that He is Israel's covenant God, and that what happens here is that that she viol- she's violating that covenant almost with every with every breath. The fourth thing we notice here that may seem positive is that. The mother solemnly consecrates the money that has been recovered to Yahweh, which expects, so we think at this point, well, we're going to have something positive here. She seems to be devoted to the Lord, but as soon as we get past that, she says, I'm going to dedicate the silver from my hand to Yahweh for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will. Return it to, to him. So we, we just get to the second half of the sentence and we realize it's not so positive after all. So here are several features then that, that are negative about this whole situation. First of all, there's a tremendous amount of religious verbiage here, a lot of pious sounding language. First time I really ran into that was when I went to seminary. And you run into people, every other word is Jesus, every other word is Lord, and and they constantly use evangelical vocabulary to express themselves. And you always find it true with some young Christians, especially in certain contexts, every other thing they say is, well, just praise the Lord or thank the Lord. and And that may represent a sound sentiment and attitude, but... Before long, it's just verbiage with no real meaning. It has no no reality in their soul. And what happens is religion always has a lot of accurate verbiage, but it doesn't mean anything. So one thing we notice, despite all the piety that Micah expresses in his confession of guilt, he still violates God's covenant. He, he stole, which is a violation of... Exodus 2015, one of the Ten Commandments, and he is really contemptuous of his mother in the action of stealing from her. So he's not honoring his mother, which is another commandment in Exodus 20 verse 12. So there's this overt surface religion, but he's disobeying the covenant. Second, Micah's motive is out of fear, not out of the desire to do what is right. Third, The woman, as we've already seen, when she dedicates the silver to Yahweh, doesn't take it to the priest at Shiloh, but gives it to her son. Fourth, despite her statement that the silver is to go to God, she keeps most of it for herself. She only gives him 200 shekels, and we have to watch for the other 900. And fifth, the woman's intention in dedicating the silver flies in the face of the second covenant i mean the second commandment which is not to worship other gods or not to worship idols so what we see throughout this is the flagrant violation of the mosaic law and then micah takes it to and he already has a cult shrine which is called the house of god down in verse Five. And Micah, the man Micah had a shrine. Literally, that means a house of the gods. Elohim is used there. It's not a house of God, but a house of gods. And he has his own little religious operation going. And so he's just going to add another God. See, that's what a lot of people do with God, is they just, you know, add God to their life like one other thing rather than making God the absolute authority in their life. And you'll never get anywhere. In life, as a believer until you recognize that God is the highest priority and he is over and above everything else. And then the seventh thing we notice is that he designs his own idols. He builds these. They're called teraphim. Zechariah 10.2 says that the teraphim, these are little household gods, the teraphim speak iniquity, the diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. So from that we infer that teraphim are used in some kind of fortune-telling operation, that they're seeking some kind of word about the future. So he designs these as teraphim or household gods who would give prophecies through visions and dreams. And then the last thing we notice is he sets up one of his own sons as a priest. So this sets up a new religious system, and then he's going to really expand it and go big time in the second half of the chapter. Well, we only got as far as verse 6, and our time's up, so we'll come back and begin in verse 7 and see the expansion of this and the impact of this religious system next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the time we've had this morning to study your word, to understand that the solution in life must be related to the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is that we are born sinners. We have a corrupt nature. The solution is not morality, religion, immorality. It is a dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. It starts with faith alone in Christ alone. It starts with salvation. First, there must be regeneration. It's at this time that we give anyone here an opportunity to be saved if they have not already put their faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is not a result of uh, church attendance, morality, religion, ritual, or any other human factor, but is based upon the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ died there to pay the penalty for our sins so that the issue is no longer our sinfulness, our depravity. The issue is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. What do you think about that? Do you accept that as a payment for your sins? If you do, then that is expressing faith alone in Christ alone, and that is the only basis for salvation. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by what we have learned today, and that we would continue to have greater perception and understanding and discernment of things in our own lives as a result of this doctrine that we've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.